Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process. Welcome to Episode 2 of ASD Engage. In this episode, we'll be discussing what parents can do to prepare for an autism assessment. Dr. Heidi, in your experience, why is this topic so important? I guess because a lot of the times, like parents are coming in and they might know that they're coming for an ASD diagnosis and they might not. So they're coming um, after being referred from their primary um, uh, healthcare provider or doctor or pediatrician. And uh, the information that they have uh, to prepare them can be really variable. So we want to kind of even out that playing field in terms of what parents know and what can parents expect when they're coming for an assessment here at Holland Bloorview or anywhere else. Okay, so in this episode then, we're also going to talk to Dr. Sharon Smile, a developmental pediatrician here at Holland Bloorview. Uh, So thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Smile. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm glad. <laughs> All right. So first off, we'd like you to tell us about what you do here at Holland Bloorview. Mm. I have the best job in the world because I get to play with kids and I meet wonderful families, really exceptional parents and um, kids who challenge me to be better each day. And it's called a developmental pediatrician, which just means a physician who specializes in a children and youth who have developmental difficulties such as a wide range, autism spectrum disorder, cerebral palsy, cognitive impairment, ADHD, and who might just have a difficult time um, managing the environment. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So I kind of want to jump in a little bit and talk specifically about working with children with autism. Why is this a field that you chose to specialize in? You're going hard, Maureen. (laughs) That's the plan. So I am a pediatrician by training. And I think it all started when I was um, a resident in Jamaica at University Hospital of the West Indies. And in our child development clinic, we would see kids who present with many different developmental concerns. And in our setting, we're a resource-limited country. And we'll see kids who had difficulty speaking, just functioning, and then they had these additional factors or symptoms such as hand flapping, difficulty with behavior, transition challenges. And in reading up about what could this be, we learned that autism spectrum disorder defined or defined those symptoms beautifully. But the problem is that when we look at intervention and most of the intervention and research around that comes from resource-rich countries like North America, the treatment would be behavioral therapists, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists. And in Jamaica, 
we don't have a government system similar to Canada that where kids will have access to those services. So as a student, I'm wondering, okay, what can we do for our communities and our kids here in Jamaica? And I think that was the reason why I decided I need to find a way, understand autism metabolic more, and try to see if we could come up with clinical care that could be applicable to countries that may not be as um, resource rich, like mm -hmm. in Canada. Parents and kids are used to going to visit with their pediatrician or their doctor, and in those situations, they usually have a sense of what to expect. But for many families, when they're referred for an assessment here to Holland Bloorview, they may not really have much idea of what that entails. So tell us, like, what are we talking about when we talk about an ASD assessment? So um, when we look at an autism spectrum disorder assessment, I tend to move away from um, being very rigid in stepwise process. What we do here at Holland Bloorview is what's called a developmental assessment. What I want to do is get to know you, your child, and some of the skills that they're really good at doing and things that they're not good at doing. And in walking through with that parent, with that parent and child through their journey, and we usually start from getting some information from a referring physician, other people who are involved in their care, their teachers, daycare providers, or any other subspecialty that might be involved, just to get a sense of what has happened before. And then when they do, when they come to their appointment here at Holland Bloorview, I walk through from conception to present. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is paint a picture of that child's development to see where things were going really, really great, and then when things started becoming problematic. Because when we, we look at autism spectrum disorder, I haven't found a child who just presents with ASD alone. There's this comorbidity that exists, and what I mean by that, there's other things that are happening with autism spectrum disorder. So there are other medical challenges that occur, there might be cognitive challenges that occur, and so you wanted to get that holistic picture. So when kids come in, we walk through that journey from neonatal period straight on till their current setting and I try to get a sense of where they're functioning in their main areas whether or not it's communication skills, vote receptive, expressive, um, looking at nonverbal skills, I look at their social skills, behavioral profile, motor skills and then what I try to then do is present that case to parents to say this is where they're functioning compared to other kids their same chronological age. And if there's a deficit, then I try to figure out why is there a deficit? Are there risk factors there that are causing challenges? And if the symptoms match that categorical descriptor that we get in our DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder, then a diagnosis will be given, especially if those impairments impact on function. And the biggest role for kids right now is to have fun in their environment as well as go to school and learn. So if a child is not engaging with a family or having fun or doing successful at school, then that discussion is had with parents to then see whether or not autism spectrum disorder helps to for others to understand as well as the parents to understand why that child is struggling. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Smile, parents come in and there's a huge variability in what they might know about autism spectrum disorder. So how do you describe what it is? I'm very visual, so I use a lot of um, examples by drawing to help families understand what autism spectrum disorder is. I start out by saying it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means that it's brain-based, 
that's where there's difficulty and it, it's manifested in challenges in many, many different areas in a child's ability to function. The primary ones are communication, so it impacts on how your child communicates with others, with, them, with family members, as well as try to get their thoughts from in their brain out through their mouth so that others understand what they're feeling and how they see the world or view the world. The other component is that social skills component, which impacts the way they relate to others, the way they play or engage, the things that they're interested in. And then a larger component looking at different behaviors or the way they respond to external stimulus, such as sound, light, tactile, so touch, smells, or things how they prefer things being in their environment, um, as well as difficulty with transitioning. I really explain to parents that this is not a disorder where I could do a blood test and identify that this is autism. It's a term, and you'll hear it a lot in the literature, construct, meaning that clinicians as well as parents come together to say that if you have these cluster of symptoms and it impacts, impacts on functioning, then the term we use is autism spectrum disorder. And the term is meant to be a spectrum, as that world, word says, where kids could have some impairment in one area and more impairment in other areas. So when I sit and speak with families, I'll draw a circle of, of each of the areas to see how impaired that child is and mapping out how significantly impaired that child might be in one area but has amazing skill in other areas. And what we try to do is then map or match intervention to help that child function or limit or decrease the level of impairment in each area that's been affected. Um, I try also to let parents, it's really hard for parents because whenever I do give a diagnosis, there is, once we use that term autism spectrum disorder, for some families, they're happy to hear a term, now they have a reason why. But then there are other families who, after hearing that term, they hear nothing else. And so I always say that our understanding of autism spectrum disorder is evolving and it evolves by information that we learn from adults who are on the spectrum or youths who are on the spectrum and how they define themselves or see themselves as being very productive um, contributors to our economy and our society, which they are. And for those who don't have a voice, trying to look at the things that they do that are just exemplary and build on that. I like the way you talk about using the visual because it really gets at that sense that it's not like a necessarily black and white diagnosis. Or right? static. Or static, yeah. Correct. And that it really like it conveys that idea of a spectrum, right? That kids present differently. They do. Yeah. So back to the assessment process, uh, can you tell us about the steps involved? They come to us for this assessment, but it's a two-way street. We benefit so much because many things that are not necessarily written in the text, we are seeing in our kids. And so I learn each day not to be rigid in the way I think and in the way I assess kids, but to be open to their, their perspective. So the developmental process will include a history, looking at general medical um, developmental profiles, looking at other medical um, contributing factors, 
we do uh, observation of the child, just seeing what, what do they do when we don't put any demands on them. Then we do a physical examination and then um, we'll also support or overall formulation by doing um, diagnostic testing or standardized testing, which is also play-based, or we may also involve other allied health care providers, such as our speech and language pathologists. If we need to get a better sense of receptive and our expressive language, we'll also collaborate with our psychologist if we're concerned whether or not cognitive impairment might be a, a comorbidity or impacting on that child's um, or understanding of that child's development just to get a holistic picture and a bigger picture. So for younger kids, they may not necessarily do cognitive assessment, whereas it will be important in an older child, as academics is a very big um, challenge and important target and outcome measure for many families. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we want to talk about, Dr. Kiefer, how does that process, does that process look any different when children come to you for an assessment? Um, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, Dr. Smile highlighted at the beginning how she's a developmental pediatrician. And so when a child is going for an assessment with a query of ASD, um, a family might be seeing a developmental pediatrician. They might be seeing me or a psychologist, uh, or they might be seeing a nurse practitioner as well. So there's a, a small kind of body of professionals that can actually make that diagnosis. Um, and oftentimes it's up to our intake department to decide like which professional might be best suited depending on the age of the child and um, the observations that have been noted in terms of like strengths and challenges. So a lot of what Dr. Smile highlighted in terms of collaborating with other professionals, potentially speech and language uh, pathology, um, would be included in a, in a psychological um, version of that assessment. Um, a lot of times we are also doing the, the cognitive piece as well, although we tend to be a little bit more tentative in our conclusions about the cognitive piece because we don't really start to think about that kind of development, like the thinking and learning skills, really stabilizing until the kids are getting older. Because lots of factors go into that, right? Like uh, how much exposure do they have to kind of like enriching activities? How much, um, how much are they exposed to like language rich environments as well and so a lot can really change especially in those first five years so we might uh, I always like to describe it with parents is is we're going to give you the results of you know your, your child's thinking and learning skills but it's best to think about it as a snapshot in time it's like we're taking a picture and this is dated this particular date but this can change later on and it's really important to follow up so one of the benefits is that we can kind of um put a, a little flag out there to say like monitor this child's development over time to make sure that they're they're on a good trajectory but oftentimes you have parents that come in and they'll say oh no my child doesn't behave like this at home they never this you're seeing something completely unusual and so it's very hard for them to buy into a diagnosis because they think they're seeing a behavior that they haven't recognized at home is it helpful like so there's a couple parts to this question is it helpful to ask them to bring videos I've had a client who was um, had different challenges or behaviors during the assessment and parents were saying this was like a new environment for them and this is not how Johnny worked, um, the behaves yeah. at home. And as I said, or assessment is a perspective taking 
type of assessment, right? It's your perspective, parents' perspective, teacher's perspective, and putting that all together and trying to figure out what's really happening. But the most important perspective is the child perspective. So I would say, okay, let's do a video when he's at home, when there are no demands placed on him. Or we'll do video conferencing using OTN to see what Johnny's doing in his natural environment. And so we could observe. And this is why I like using the playroom often because the playroom is fun, not stressful. There may be other kids there. Um, and I like just observing kids to see what do they do on their own when I'm not trying to prod them or um, giving task for them mm-hmm. to do. And I think in that moment, and if parents are able to also to observe this from whatever mechanism um, to see how their child engages with others or when they're around in a room with so many toys as Heidi said you know blocks would they go to the cars and if they do go to the cars what are doing one thing we have to be mindful of even though for autism spectrum disorder it is categorical where you check off list of what task a kid is doing or not doing or a typical presentation we sometimes forget the quality of skills Right. So in the assessment, we're not only looking at presence or absence or differences in their presentation, but we're looking at the quality of that skill. So a child could have eye contact, but he's one millimeter away from your face. Now, that may not be an appropriate um, presentation or social, socially accepted um, engagement. But if I had a checklist, he did make eye contact but that eye contact was atypical. I've also had some parents who like just naturally brought in videos to show me. They were like wanting to kind of give me a taste or a glimpse of what it's like at home and stuff like that. And in some cases, um, it helps you see what parents are paying attention to and what maybe they value. So I have a lot of parents who come in and they're very... Uh, excited about all the child's rote skills they know the alphabet they know the the numbers and stuff like that and they'll kind of like and they might not be able to do it maybe in the the one hour that I'm seeing them or however long and in kind of like a different setting where there's lots of other factors and affecting how engaged they are with me so they'll show me what's going on at home and yeah I'll be able to kind of see and reinforce oh yeah like I can see those skills are happening and stuff like that I wonder like you know a lot of times when kids are that age too they want to share that experience so they may be looking back to you trying to get you involved in the activity and I noticed like your son or daughter like they seem to be doing it more on their own right and it kind of can open up this discussion too to maybe even broaden like okay what are they noticing right Mm -hmm. that they might not have been like so focused on before right and then you have that conversation of the function of that skill yeah right so we're great that the child is able to do it but then how useful is it in engaging others and expanding that skill set and as said this is it's important to have conversations with parents it's not that i'm right you're wrong it's like okay this is what's happening what could this mean and then what's the next step totally yeah. So video sounds super helpful though too because the other thing that I think I also captured is that it also gives you a segment of that family piece. Yeah. When yeah. you're saying this is what the parents are bringing to me and saying, look, I'm so proud. What they value. Look what my child mm-hmm. can do. And it gives you a glimpse into that family 
situation and it's nice to be able to tap into that like I really yeah I love that idea yeah and acknowledge it right because remember as Heidi said we're only seeing a snapshot yeah right so we may not be able to see those great skills that are happening within the home environment so if we're able to go oh my goodness yes he he does speak (laughs) he does use words right whereas when he's in our assessment he decides not to speak because he's so overwhelmed or anxious right and I think it honors parents as well because they're giving that history and he's not doing it at the time. They get a little bit frustrated. Yeah. Please do this. And if we saw a video, then we could go, yeah, that's correct. Good. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to ask both of you now, if parents are bringing in a lot of different emotions into this assessment, what are the ones that you often see to you first, Dr. Smile? Um fair and just this uncertainty of that child's future Mm. Um, I think those are the two biggest emotions that are being expressed and sometimes it's expressed in behavior as opposed to verbally stating it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay and you Dr. Heidi what what do you see yeah I think I would I would agree with Dr. Smile. Uh, those definitely are the, the ones that I see most commonly. Um, I think also it, it depends on kind of like what their journey has been up until that point. So I specifically work with kids under five and their background story can really differ. So we have kids who um, might have been going to daycare for a few years. They might already been involved in other services like um, early abilities, which in Toronto is like um, uh, not-for-profit uh, speech intervention service that parents can access. Um, and so in that situation, there's lots of eyes on a child, right? So families might be coming in and they kind of have this sense of like, okay, in different settings, this is how my child is being perceived, right? And and this is like a lot of times there are concerns that have been brought up to them, right? And so they have kind of a full picture. But then in other situations, um, children might not have had exposure to those same experiences. So they might be staying at home and what have you. And there's absolutely no, nothing wrong with that. Every family kind of makes their own choices in terms of what's best for their child. But they might also have almost kind of like an an insulated view of their child where they don't know, like, how is my child going to act in different situations, right? Or um, be able to compare it to other children um, their age, like same age peers, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, So I don't know if I can actually like attach a label to the emotion attached to that um, as much as to say that, um, yeah, parents are coming up with very different stories, which is interesting when you're thinking that the children are so young that we're seeing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree with that as well. And I think it depends on that journey um, and the family itself, because in one spectrum, we have this uncertainty anger, fear, but then in the older kids as well, where they may have seen multiple healthcare professionals and haven't pinpoint what's happening, especially, and I see this te- most, more so with the kids who are cognitively smart and are struggling with anxiety or peer relationships, 
and when when they have an assessment and if autism spectrum disorder best define what symptoms we're seeing i've experienced families expressing relief as okay this is what it is now i can specifically target this what supports do i need to put in place so that my child is successful right and success looks differently for many families right and it's to honor that success or their definition of success and we work towards that goal mm -hmm. I think also, too, like, I mean, Dr. Smythe, your description of autism spectrum disorder, like, was really rich. And I think at younger ages, a lot of the times I'll see parents come in and they feel like um, they have a sense like, oh, uh, they're not talking yet. Right. Words haven't come. So it must be like a language delay. Right. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, there's there, there can be a little bit of like of their own like pre-diagnosis of what's going on. Uh, and especially when you look at kind of like the checklists and, and stuff yeah. like that, that they get probably with their primary care um, provider, healthcare provider, I should say. Um, a lot of times like that's kind of what they're on the lookout for and not necessarily some of those like other areas like social skills and stuff like that and then you add on to it like maybe they're not in daycare so you're not really seeing those social skills at play yeah. what can a parent do to prepare for this assessment um i think um, anything in terms of like supplemental information. So if your child has been involved with previous assessment or intervention services and there are reports that you can bring in, if there are um, any progress notes or report cards, if your child is in a daycare or a preschool or is already in school, that can be really helpful as well. Um, uh, providing consent to talk to a daycare educator or uh, a school teacher is really helpful too. Um, a lot of times we will see differences like where a child acts one way in the home and then acts differently within the school setting, right? Um, and um, transparency in, in the sense too that um, knowing that like the more kind of sources of information that we have, the better for us to help kind of make uh, a decision, right? Or, or just really see like, okay, does an ASD diagnosis kind of like fit the overall picture of how this child is functioning across settings? Sometimes parents um, are a little bit concerned uh, and that might be just where they're at in terms of like kind of processing like, okay, this assessment, is my child going to get an ASD diagnosis? I don't know if I want the daycare to know that at this point. Um, and so it's, it's definitely, if you're a parent, it's worth having that conversation with the person who's doing the assessment with you to just to help you decide like, okay, what are the pros and cons of, of having you talk to that person? That's, you bring up a really good point. I think that that's really interesting because we do hear from parents that are concerned about once the label is put on my child, it's there for life. What is it? And there's some concerns around that. Do you hear that very often in the clinic? Often. And I think that falls into that fear factor, right? Because um, I try to frame our assessments as I'm Dr. Smile. I'm partnering with you right now in this moment in time to best understand your child. And at the end of that partnership, I hope to transition you to a new partner or another partner who will then continue with that support. And if it's, I think we kind of challenge for developmental pediatrics, especially in that field, we challenge what's typically known as a doctor patient relationship right so I'm not it's not like a yes or no answer 
and development is so fluid and variable and changes. And as stated earlier, um, at a moment in time, if I saw a child at age two, they may have some red flags, which we call concerning symptomatologies for autism spectrum disorder, but may not have met the criteria. But as they got older, when that social demand um, kicks in or their language skill has improved so much and now we're looking at the quality of those skill sets, then they may now meet criteria for autism spectrum disorder. So when you're having a developmental assessment and let's say that child did not meet criteria but had concerns, it's not like we say, you don't have ASD, go home. We have to honor or identify those concerns and say, okay, what could this mean and how do we support? And it's not an all or none type of diagnosis or relationship with the parent. And I think it's um, developmental pediatric, pediatrics is a, is a relationship and anyone who works in this field, we're building relationships with parents because coming into an assessment when you're, when you're talking about your child, this precious connection that you have and you have all these hopes and dreams for this child and you are identifying the challenges that they're seeing. We all see the challenges, but let's look at the things that this child is able to do really, really well. Empower parents and identify that, okay, it's going to be a little bit rocky, but let's get you the right supports. Okay, before you came here today, Dr. Smile, we asked you to think about a family that really changed your perspective. What came up for you? Flashes. <laughs> <laughs> A mosaic. <laughs> I think on my journey, I've been privileged enough to have families open their homes and their hearts and their their lives to me. Um, and one of the most impactful relationships I've had is with a family from home um, in Jamaica, where I met an amazing lady, Kathy, who is who founded the Jamaica Autism Support Association which is for families and parents with kids who are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And what she, her son, Cal, who is phenomenal, what they've taught me in their journey, and he's now a young adult, um, is that where there's nothingness, and at the time when this mom got her diagnosis or Cal received his diagnosis, there's nowhere for her to turn. And it was fascinating to see in the absence of something, how this mom created this new idea, parent support group in a developing country and connected parents and parents were so hungry for that type of support. And they will travel miles for hours just to come to a meeting once a month to hear other families about what they're doing, what is really good, what things were not good, or just to talk or connect. And Kyle, who is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, can play the piano. He does deep sea diving, he swims, he's a competitive swimmer. And I look at my own life and I stop to say, these kids teach me to be fearless and to be limitless. And every time I, when I come to work and I feel as if, um, oh, I can't do that, that's too much energy, too much time, I stop and I reflect back on the Kyles, the Calebs, the clients that I've seen, and for them to be able to come in any clinic visit and tolerate us poking or asking them to do a test that they're not interested in, yet still they do, mm -hmm. over and above, then who am I? 
I should go over and above and also recognize sometimes when I can't right and when I do some introspection and I reflect I also this I pause every time I speak with families and I ask how are you doing what are your thoughts what supports do you have mom or dad or grandma because we we tend to go on and on and on and on but sometimes um, our clients or kids with autism spectrum disorder has taught me that yeah there's no boundaries but sometimes you have to pause take a breath like they learned a skill and they're gonna keep doing that skill and then we go to the next level mm-hmm. that's amazing I think too in previous conversation you had talked about the child and that you're not dealing with the child in isolation it's like a small segment of a family unit talk right. a little bit more about that we're all connected and or kids when they clients when they present to us are not living in isolation right and when we look at behaviors we look at challenges that they're having um, most of their presentations are formed or created by their experiences and the experience will be within the home environment school environment or the community so when we're seeing kids we should always look at the other levels of um, engagements that they're participating family, community, school. What well, one thing would you say to the parents who are now on the wait list for an assessment? I would ask parents to look at or identify rather what their child is good at doing. I'd ask them to look at what makes their child really, really happy because we're gonna use that and leverage that for any intervention program that's been had. Um, We focus a lot of what is missing, what is less, what's impaired, but these kids are phenomenal in many different aspects and sometimes we overlook that. So I will encourage or rather recommend that parents pause and see what their child is gifted. Everyone is gifted in something and if we could identify that, then we could always use that and continue to build that. Dr. Smile, your response to that question shows that you clearly care a lot about your clients. What are some of your favorite things about working with the ASD population? I get to learn every day. I get to learn from families every day. I learned yesterday about cosmic yoga on YouTube. This wouldn't be something that I'd go and find out on my own. But learning information from each client that I could then apply to other clients. So it's this networking that happens. And just the joy of being... I will tell the parents that I'm here to serve you. Because that's what our job is. Is to support you and to facilitate you accessing the right supports. And so my, my joy in coming to work is to help. So if there's any way I could help in whatever um, role I have here at Holland Bloor View or as a human being, that's what I want to do. That's amazing. So I think we've touched on a lot of important details about what happens when a child is getting assessed for autism spectrum disorder and helping parents and families know what to expect in the process. Thanks for your insights, Dr. Smile, and I know you're going to be popping into one of our subsequent episodes on eating and 
uh, feeding issues and ASD. We're going to continue some of these themes in our next episode. And we're also going to go further into thinking about what happens if your child does get a diagnosis of ASD. If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today, feel free to email us at asdengage at hollandbloorview.ca.